Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to this special Science Town series on connectivity. Given the events of the past year, it would seem that connectivity is more important than ever for work, education, groceries, mental health, and a whole lot more. As part of the 2021 Winter Enrichment Program at KAUST, we're exploring connectivity in all its forms with some of the world's leading experts. Today's guest is Paula Moraga. She's an assistant professor of statistics at KAUST, She joined my colleague Ben Stevens to talk about understanding disease through data analysis and modeling. Enjoy. So since moving to KAUST in the summer, you've been part of a multidisciplinary team here that is working on ways of modelling COVID-19 outbreaks. Can you tell us a little bit more about this work? Yes, so um, I collaborated with uh, professors Fernando Umbao, David Ketchenson, and Carlos Duarte in CAUS on projects related to COVID-19 response. In one of the projects, we assessed the severity of COVID-19 by age and gender, which is very important to plan health resources. And in other projects, we quantified the effects of interventions such as lockdowns and social distancing measures that prevented millions of deaths globally. So in these studies, we observed that the risk of severe symptoms is higher in older people and males. And this helps develop strategies for disease prevention and control that protect the most vulnerable populations and also help allocate resources in regions that are most needy. And this is focusing on Saudi Arabia specifically? Well, for this study, we used data uh, that was uh, openly available in Spain, but we have compared our studies with other studies that were uh, done in other places and we reached the, the same conclusions as them. So previously you worked on projects examining malaria in Africa and leptospirosis in Brazil. Can you explain what impact that research had on on these projects? Well, uh, in one of the projects, uh, we assessed uh, leptospirosis in an urban slum community in Brazil. Leptospirosis is a disease that is transmitted by the urine of the rats or an environment that is contaminated with the urine of the rats. And it's very common in urban slum communities because the rapid and disorganized growth of these communities creates ecological conditions for rat-borne transmission. So in this study, we wanted to understand the spatial and spatiotemporal patterns of the disease and identify targets of intervention. So we recruited a number of people and followed them for several years. And each year we collected information about disease status and also environmental and sociodemographic risk factors. And at the end of the study, we were able to create maps showing the risk of leptospirosis 
And we were, we were able uh, to better understand risk factors such as being in contact with mud and water that could be contaminated. So all of this was very useful. There were campaigns to educate people about leptospirosis and its causes, and this allowed the population to modify their behaviors to protect themselves and to decrease transmission levels in the community. The other project uh, about malaria uh, was a project where we wanted to assess the effect of two interventions to reduce malaria transmission in Malawi. Malaria is a disease that is transmitted by mosquitoes. And in the last decade, the burden of malaria has declined globally thanks to interventions such as insecticide-treated bed nets, indoor residual spraying, and prompt treatment with anti-malarial drugs. However, in the last four or five years, this decline has slowed. So now researchers are investigating new interventions that can help decrease transmission levels uh, to reach elimination. So in this project, we assessed the effect of two interventions, house improvement and larval source management on malaria transmission. House improvement was going to the households and closing all the holes, windows, and walls very well, so mosquitoes could not enter. And larval source management was going to the water bodies and applying larvicides to kill potential larval habitats or removing water bodies through draining or filling. Then we randomized villages in four groups. One of the groups received house improvement, the other larval source management, the other both interventions, and the other group only had the usual interventions that were provided by the government. Then uh, we sampled mosquitoes using traps uh, and tested a sample of the population for malaria and evaluated the impact of these interventions. And at the end of the study, we observed that um, malaria transmission decreased in, in all villages, but we were unable to identify differences between groups. So we think that the interventions that were already in place mm -hmm. by the government were effective in reducing transmission. And the same that we did in the leptospirosis study, we also went to the villages with a team of researchers and also local people that understood their language. And we organized activities with music, dancing, football games to raise awareness about malaria and people were very enthusiastic and was very useful to convey information about malaria and its risk. So people understood what they needed to do to, do to avoid getting infected and to, increase, uh, to decrease malaria transmission. And uh, malaria and uh, leptospirosis have been um, studied before and, and, and how uh, outbreaks occur. Uh, was, did COVID present quite a different challenge because it was so new as a disease? Well, these studies were done before COVID-19 uh, appeared. So mm. uh, we, because it's true that nowadays there are a lot of resources that are focused on COVID-19 and we are like forgetting other diseases that are also very important. So 
um, there are worries about this because like we are focusing, well, it's justified that we are focusing in COVID-19, but there are some populations that have other problems and it's like, we are not paying attention to these problems anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so moving on to WEP 2021, this year's festival's theme is connectivity. So how does your work relate to this theme? Well, I work in disease surveillance and human health is interconnected with animal health and with the environment. There are many diseases that spread from animals to humans. There are vector-borne diseases that are transmitted by mosquitoes or ticks. And also human activities and development are causing the emergence of infectious diseases. Hmm. For example, um, deforestation is putting wildlife in contact with humans. Climate change and increased temperatures are making that the mosquitoes expand to new areas and diseases that usually occur in tropical and subtropical areas of the world are now occurring in new areas. And also global travel is making diseases spread beyond national borders. Like people living in an infectious location can go abroad and infect people abroad. And people that come to the infectious location for holidays, for example, they can get infected. And then when they return to their home countries, they can infect people in their home countries. It's very important that we acknowledge this connectivity and work together, people in epidemiology, in environment, in statistics, all together in order to solve global health challenges. So going back to your research, how can you allay people's fears about data from their phones and social media being gathered and analysed, however noble the aim of the research might be? Um, well, I think that in some situations these fears are totally justified because there are companies that try to get private data for advertisement or for influencing opinion. So it's good to be aware of these risks. Mm -hmm. And there are also regulations in place to protect the individuals. But there are also many situations where private data can be used for good. For example, a digital data can be used to monitor diseases. And this is because data from traditional surveillance systems are delayed. From the time that the person gets sick, 
to the time that a person decides to go to the doctor, goes to the doctor, have the laboratory tests, and that information is in the system, it may take a few weeks. So this information is not useful for taking action in real time. Mm. Nowadays, we have access to other types of information such as social media data where people talk about how they feel or Google searches where people search treatments for their conditions. And this information is not produced for epidemiological research, but we can use it to understand disease activity levels in real time. So we can use data from surveillance systems and combine this data with anonymized digital data. And this may prevent that local outbreaks become global pandemics. And also there are extraordinary situations like the one we are living today with COVID-19 where private information may be crucial to save lives. For example, many countries are using contact tracing apps to monitor the movements and locations of the population. And this is very useful to stop transmission because if someone gets infected, uh, we can identify their contacts and they can be informed that they were in contact with someone that tested positive and they need to monitor their symptoms and to avoid contact with other people. Uh, for these apps to work, they need to be used by a majority of the population and countries that have used these apps have been able to reduce transmission levels and return more or less to, to normal activity mm -hmm. and to reopen their economies. And this is in contrast with other countries that are still relying on cycles of lockdowns and social distancing measures to protect the population. So I think that we need to ask ourselves whether it's worth it to provide private information that we know that is going to be used only for this purpose and is going to be destroyed afterwards. Uh, and by doing this, uh, we will be able to live more or less normal lives or, or, or if we want just to continue living with these restrictive mobility rules until a vaccine is available for everyone. I guess, they do they just have to take it on trust that the data is destroyed appropriately afterwards? Well, uh, this is what uh, governments need to ensure. Like they have regulations and, and when uh, a, a contact tracing app or other app is deployed, there are um, uh, regulations in place to, to ensure this. So people can be uh, can, 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 can trust on this. Okay. Um, and then um, final question. Um, what first sparked your interest in infectious disease monitoring and what further developments would you like to see in this field? Well, so I started to work on geospatial data analysis and health surveillance when I was doing my PhD. Uh, during that time, I collaborated with the Registry of Cancer in Spain, doing spatial analysis and detecting clusters of different types of cancer. Mm -hmm. But my background was in mathematics, so I, did, I didn't have much knowledge of epidemiology or biostatistics. 
So I decided to apply for a fellowship to go to Harvard to study a master's in biostatistics. And I also did a research stay at the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control in Sweden. After that, I returned to Spain. I finished my PhD. And then I worked at several institutions and universities in the UK, Australia, and the US, mostly in a statistical research for infectious diseases in low and middle income countries. Now uh, I'm working on new methods to advance geospatial data science and surveillance. Uh, for example, I'm working on methods for disease mapping, disease maps are very important to understand the spatial and spatiotemporal patterns of diseases. And these maps are often created using data that has been aggregated in areas such as municipalities or counties for confidentiality reasons. Mm -hmm. So these maps that are created at an error resolution allow us to understand patterns of disease burden, but they are not very useful for decision makers because these maps do not allow to see how disease risk varies within areas. So they are not useful for decision makers to allocate resources in areas of greatest need. So now I'm developing new methods to disaggregate area level data and construct uh, especially continuous risk surfaces that will uh, enable to assess disease risk at a local level and are much, um, that will be much better for decision making. Um, another area of my work is the development of new methods to integrate data at different spatial and spatiotemporal resolutions um, from different sources to obtain better inferences. Mm -hmm. So uh, where I work, I, I work in geospatial data analysis and we have access to a vast amount of data. We have data from traditional surveillance systems. We also have environmental and sociodemographic data such as temperature, humidity, rainfall that can affect diseases. And we can also use digital data. Um, so we have a lot of data, but uh, these data have limitations and biases that need to be accounted for in the modeling approach mm -hmm. in order to obtain valid inferences. For example, as I said before, data from surveillance systems may be delayed. Digital data has also limitations. Not everybody uses social media platforms. Internet penetration is different in different places. And environmental and sociodemographic data are available at different spatial and spatiotemporal resolutions. So uh, we need to develop new methods that enable to combine data at different spatial and spatiotemporal resolutions and from different sources that take into account all of these biases and limitations and account for all of the uncertainties in order to obtain better inferences in health surveillance. And are there specific things that you'd like to see in some of those uh, areas that have diseases that you, you were saying maybe are being forgotten slightly during COVID? You know, is that uh, places that have malaria and leptospirosis are rural or slum uh, locations, aren't there? Is there um, more technology that might help 
the recording of outbreaks there? Yes, so, so I think that um, there are a lot of people working on, on new methods for disease mapping, for example. Um, when we provide our estimates, we provide estimates with uh, uncertainty ranges. So we will, we will we say to the decision makers, this is the prevalence and this is the uncertainty. And we see that uh, like there are many, many areas where we don't have data. Mm. And we can, we can use some environmental demographic risk factors to be able to uh, predict, but sometimes this is not enough. So I think um, there should be an effort to collect more data about individuals, because if data are not collected, it's like we, we cannot see the problem and we cannot help um, these communities to, to improve. Thanks for listening to this special series on connectivity. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Aries, and Julie West. I'm Nicholas DeMille. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.